Welcome to Money Memoirs, a taboo-breaking interview series sharing intimately uncensored conversations about money. I am Barry Tesler, a financial therapist, author, and creator of The Art of Money, my year-long money school and global community. Join me as I connect with brave folks from all walks of life to explore their experiences with money from their greatest struggles to triumphant celebrations, to lessons learned, and unexpected discoveries along the way. These interviews are raw, heartfelt money stories. They're vulnerable, inspiring, and always authentic. These interviews are a snapshot of the personal connection and practical support you'll find in my year-long money school, The Art of Money. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps. And it blends together therapeutic body-based practices with so many real life tools that you need to create healthy, sustainable change in your money life. If you'd like to learn more, head to barrytesler.com. For now, get comfy and cozy for another intimately uncensored money memoir. Welcome everyone to my money memoir interview series. Today I have the honor of interviewing Christina Rasmussen, who I've known for probably almost nine years. She is an acclaimed grief educator, author of Second First, and Where Did You Go? She's the host of the Dear Life podcast. In 2003, Christina's husband of 10 years was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. On July 21st, 2006, he died at the age of 35. While grieving, Christina continued working to support her two young children. She's now the founder of the Life Reentry Institute, a model of grieving based on her professional, academic, and personal observations of the bereavement process. Her mission is to change the way that we grieve, the way we live, and how we define our potential in this life and the hereafter. Christina's model of grief operates on the assumption of psychological resilience. The defining characteristic of the model proposed by Second First is the view of loss as a catalyst for change and self-growth, redefining identity, and outlines a process of re-entry or returning to life. Her institute's mission is to bring forth a new way of speaking about and embracing loss within the medical, corporate, and social environments. She currently works and lives in Austin, Texas with her husband, Eric, their daughters, and their two dogs. Welcome, Christina. Hi, Barry. <laughs> you know, can I just say, no matter how many times I hear my bio read in all the interviews I've done, I always, my mind, my thought is that can't be me. Mm. It's not me, but it is. And it's the weirdest thing in the world, you know, how we see ourselves and, and how the world perceives us and so on. So it's always fascinating, you know? And where we've been and where we've come and what we've overcome and where we are now and yeah. what we've created and what we've survived and thrived in all of it. So yeah. yes. And so it's all right there, you know, in those three paragraphs. Well, some of it, you know, yes. some of it. Yeah. 
So I don't know if you know this about me, but um, in my 20s, from the age of 20 to 25, I lost four of the closest men in my life. I lost my beloved grandfather, my poppy. Um, I lost my two uncles to um, AIDS. And I lost my Israeli boyfriend um, from suicide. I knew about him, but I didn't know about all the others, Barry. Wow. Wow. Yeah. 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 And that led me to doing some, well, obviously I was in a grief process for many, many, many years. Um, And that's another story for another day, because this is about you and your work, but it ties in. I, I found my way to hospice and overnight care for elderly before they were passing. And I did some bereavement groups and I was in an active grieving process, which looked like me dancing every night, lighting candles for hours and hours every night for year, you know, for a few years. And that's how I entered into graduate school to train to be a therapist. Wow. I didn't, you know, I knew about the loss of your boyfriend, um, but I didn't know the depths in which you went into this work and, um, it is a, I think grief changes our DNA, uh, everything about us. And I can tell that, and I think it kind of changed the trajectory. I mean, you became a therapist because of it, I think, Barry. Yes, yes, I was, or yes. Mm-hmm. You know? Exactly, exactly. And I thought I'd be doing work on bereavement and grief and loss and death. And um, of course, it weaves in in all the money work that I do at this time. And that's part of what we're going to talk about today. Um, And I just wanted to add that because it's also, it's different than losing a husband or losing a child. And it had an enormous impact on me as a 20 to 25 year old young woman, um, as I was, you know, still just stepping into myself, you know. And Barry, can I say about, you know, loss in general, grief, and, you know, it's so, you know, I often hear people say this thing, but it, you know, of course, it's not like losing a spouse or a child, but I have to say, and for everyone who's listening, the thing is, loss of any kind, any kind of loss, whether it's a, it's a friendship, a boyfriend, a, a mother, a father, a sibling, child, a spouse, um, being bullied at school, um, being rejected, um, feeling worthless, feeling uh, not seen, being sexually abused, um, loss of financial security, loss of identity. All of those losses can be equally catastrophic, equally catastrophic to a human being. And actually, as a matter of fact, the more um, invisible our losses the more nobody can understand our pain, the more alone we are in our loss, the more dangerous and long-lasting that loss is. And sometimes the most tragic losses, the losses that society accepts as tragic, like the loss of a spouse or the loss of a child, some of them can be, however hard and tragic they are, they can be healed easier because we have a whole community coming around us. But when you're grieving something so deeply unseen and so difficult for yourself with nobody else walking by your side, um, that's how suicide happens, actually. That's how we lose people completely. 
and it, you named so many different kinds of losses. I, in that list, I don't know if you also said um, losing a, a really significant job, you know, that you've oh, had yes, for yes, three yes. years or, yes. or bankruptcy. Yes, or, oh, yes. You know, yes. Um, health, you know, um, health challenges or, you know, or losing your home or, um, I mean, we can go on and on, right? Um, and right now with all the forest fires happening in <sighs> California, everyone is potentially losing their home. They, you know, they don't know. So we're, we're, loss is real. Loss happens for all it, of us. Yeah. Everyone. Um, I want to stay here for a little bit before we dive into your personal money memoir, which will, I really want to hear some of your money story and more of your loss story. Um, so you were just defining loss and, and many of the losses that happen in a human life. Um, will you share a little bit more? I was really struck when we spoke recently, you talked about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model mm -hmm. of bereavement as first responder. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it gives you a really important diagram of all the different emotions and flavors and ups and downs that happen at the beginning, which can be a few years, you know, yes. um, and that your work with second first and your model is second responder and helps people realize that they've been hanging out in what you call a waiting room mm -hmm. and giving them the tools to come back into life. So it continues where her work leads off. So share a little bit more and then we'll go into your personal story about defining loss, what happens in loss and how to work with that place. Yeah, no, and, and very well said. And, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's model of the stages of bereavement is wonderful and amazing. And, and you know, we all go through it. And even though she, she created that model for the dying um, versus the, the people who are grieving, but we do use it for grief and um, and it's wonderful. And I even had dreams about Elizabeth. <laughs> She's come to my dreams. She sat on the couch with me. We had coffee together, Barry. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's been an amazing journey, personally and professionally, to, to see people through the, that process. But the life reentry model picks up where, where she, she ends with her work and is ready to take people on a new journey uh, to re-enter life, to get out of what I call the waiting room. Because I believe that what happens when we are grieving, we are being told to wait for time to heal us. We are being told to, um, to, to, to not make any decisions, to, to just stand down. And, and that's great. That's good advice to begin with. That's great. But what happens is, um, especially when the loss uh, is invisible, especially when the loss is shameful, especially when the loss is something we do not really talk about, share, um, do anything with. We're not in the healing process. When that, when that takes place, we get stuck in a place between two lives, the life we were forced to leave because of what happened, and the life that we could have um, if we only know that the place we are is only a place in between, which I call the waiting room. What happens when we enter the waiting room is we are there to heal ourselves, but once we stay there for a little while, the brain, and, and brain science is one of my favorite hobbies, 
the brain actually likes to stay in it in the comfort zone of that um, waiting room space. So we walk in because of our grief, but we stay there because of our fear. Fear of rejection, fear of the loss taking place again. The brain is now afraid to try anything new. So we don't experience a life reentry. And Barry, one thing I've learned with doing this work uh, is that unfortunately the danger is that millions of people die in that place in between the waiting room because they think that's their second life and all it is is a waiting space. And that makes me so sad um, not only they die there, but they, they lose hope, they lose the belief in themselves. They never, ever discover who they, they could become after loss. Grief is a superpower, actually. Grief is um, what, what takes place during our grief is, is potentially a rebirth, unless, unless we get stuck unless we cannot exit the loop, the infinite loop of loss. So there's no time frame on this, right? There's no, you, you are in the bereavement process for this much time and then you're in the waiting room for this much time and now you gotta come back to life now, you know that, can you just talk about that? That it's, yeah. it's there's, there's no judgment or expectation or that, that's not how it works. And so, yeah. Well, this is a waiting room that you've seen so many people get lost in and not come out of and have the rebirth. And I want to talk about that a little bit more. There's also like no set time frame. We like just say a little bit more. Just yeah, yeah. yeah. So okay. the, the time through, so there's not a set time frame. Would you and one thing I wanna say is and I smile when I say this is because men actually go through, you know, the stage of bereavement and the waiting room much faster than women. Hmm. <laughs> I know there's been so many studies actually on, on grief and men versus women. And um, for some reason, and, and I, I need to, to really delve into that more. For some reason, men re-enter sooner. Also, in all of the years that I've done the life reentry work, um, 90% of the participants were women, 10% were men. Um, and it's not because men are not grieving and men are not experiencing pain. And men are not experiencing invisible loss. Actually, men experience a lot of invisible loss. Uh, they, they suffer in silence even more than women. And, but we don't see them. We don't see them in the programs. We don't see them anywhere. Uh, some of it is because men do overcome this faster. However, um, when we're, so there is no, I, I don't see it as a linear experience. Um, we, we grieve. So when, when grief begins, when, when something really, really terrible happens in our life, we need to engage in the stages of bereavement and the life reentry work at the same time. Without it, uh, so it's not the time uh, frame, but it's the amount. It's not the, um, the, 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 the how long it's gonna take, but, but what, um, what is the, the, the variety of action that you're gonna take during that process. So for example, I've had clients when I used to see clients many years ago now um, that something really tragic would happen to them and I would see them, let's say five or six weeks in. Um, I would say we would do 90% just grief work, listening, validating the loss, listening to the story and 10% or even less um, doing a bit of life reentry. So when someone is in the early stages of grieving, 
we don't want to push them too much out of that waiting room. We want them to be there. We want them to be comfortable. We also, also, and this is the significant part, and I say this like this, we need to learn to live and grieve at the same time. Because if we allow the brain to take over our process and basically get used to that grief identity and that grief experience, the reentry is much harder many years later. So you don't have to reenter completely. So the waiting room is a place that we go in and out of. So let's say even now, after all these years later, let's say I'm having a down day. I'm having a day where I need a break. I need to not be um, so active in my life, in my work, in, in everything that I'm doing. And I choose to have a waiting room day. So we choose to go back and to go into uncomfort zone and to not become anything or anyone and to just stay put. And that's okay. Sometimes that is a week, a month, as long as we know where we are and as long as we're in control of when we want to leave. So it's not how long it takes to grieve. I think grief in many ways lives outside of time and space, Barry. You know? It doesn't live in a linear time-based reality we all experience grief most of our lives and we all are supposed to be alive during that time as well and living so it's a it's a mix and match of of tools and skills and experiences that we get to have and i believe with all of my heart i hope and i don't know if i'm going to succeed in this because this is a big realize as the years go by what a big mission this is to educate to change the way that we perceive grief in our world for, for, for not only to have grief support groups in our churches and our hospitals, but to, to also have life reentry support groups and for people, for the person to choose when they are ready to enter that life reentry experience, to go to that second responder experience. It's, 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 the timeline is different for everyone and the way they're doing it is different for everyone as well. Yeah, I'm, you know, I, it's so tender to even remember back for me for that time of, I didn't want any light coming through my windows. I love the nighttime. Yes. Um, you know, first I wasn't eating at all. Like you, I know you lost a lot, a lot oh, of weight. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I couldn't stop eating, you know, and then I (laughs) needed to fill myself up, but that was, you know, and that was part of it and the dancing with the candles. And it was so in between worlds, which is in between time, space, all of that. And just to imagine how many of us are walking around at different points in our lives going through something like that. And it's magical in many ways because because I think when you're in grief, you are outside of time and space, meaning you are in this non-linear way of life because you're in suspend, you're suspended, you know, you're in this suspension experience and, and the years or the months or however long you are in this, you know, nauseating, not eating, um, uh, mistake making, um, angry, denial, bargaining, screaming, yelling, crying phase, um, I have seen people in that phase where they'll they'll have those moments, they'll experience these things, and then they will do what I call the plug-in, um, where they plug into the new life for a few seconds, let's say. So this is the way I see it. So so even when someone is grieving deeply, they you can have that person 
even for just five minutes, um, laugh at a joke, for example, um, you know, paint a wall in their, in their house a different color. I remember going, um, when I did the, my, my main uh, book tour for Second Firsts, the first, when the book was released the first time, um, I remember this uh, lady sitting um, at a bookshop in uh, Portland, Oregon, and she said to me, I'm disabled, I'm grieving, I can't do all the things that you recommend, what should I do? And I said, you know, even if that's the case, take the chair that you sit and you watch TV and move it in a, help, have someone move it in a different part of the room. That is called life reentry. That's changing your life. That's, that's rearranging the, the, the pathways inside your brain. That's you exiting the infinite loop of loss. That's you saying, I am not my grief identity and I am going to, even for just a very small percentage, um, I will re-enter today. And these plugins in the beginning are only 5%. And I'm, I'm very specific about this because the, the fear center is so easily activated during grief that if we try to have someone take a, a big step and jump, that's why I actually don't believe in jumping or jump in the net will appear. Maybe when, when we've trained our brain with these smaller steps for a while, then we can do that. But I believe that even in the deepest grief, in the, in the hardest moments that we take really, really tiny, small steps, sneaking out of the fear center of our brain and re-entering life for a split moment. I, I love it. I love how I'm a fan of baby steps as well. Yeah. Um, and the leaps come, but it, it's like hundreds of yes. baby steps and, then, and yeah. then you get some leaps. And I love how you're saying that the plug-in is just 5% at the beginning um, after lots of grieving, you know, after lots of going through so much of that. And I really feel how much you're a champion for both the deep, deep grief bereavement process and for um, re-entering into life again, that you, um, that you're such a champion of all yep. of that. And I don't know why I feel like when, whenever we go to have an interview, I feel like I'm going to start crying. So <laughs> <laughs> that's all good. That's okay. It's all the good energy. And, and, and Barry, I want to, I want to just mention really quickly, um, the three personas um, of life reentry, if that's okay with you for people. Yes, and then we'll go into your money memoir. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to say this because the, and, and, and actually, I don't know, Barry, did I mention this? There's a clinical trial that's starting with life reentry. Um, in the next couple of weeks, um, there's a big grant that was awarded to my work, um, and it, we're, we're going to enter a three year uh, period of, of a clinical trial um, of life reentry, which I'm very excited about. So, this work to me, when I created it, I thought I, everyone was going to think I was, I was crazy. That, and, and I'm sure I've told you this, Barry, in the, in the early years, like, gosh, like people will think about these personas and, and they will say, what is she going on about? But, but these personas that I'm going to share have been such a big part of, of the people understanding what's going on with their brain while they're grieving and what, what is going on with their narrative, their inner world. So the three personas are, um, I, the, the number one, um, I call the survivor self, which is the amygdala, the fear center of our brain. That's the part of us that was here to, um, to support us and take care of us during the very difficult time in our life. 
they, it's the voice that says, be careful here, take care of yourself, don't, don't um, overdo it, um, you need to take it easy, you need to go in the waiting room, you need to protect yourself. And you know, I learned over the years that we actually do love that part of us very much. So this, you know, in, in our world, we, we call cancer survivors or so-and-so, the word survivor is, a, is supposed to be a positive word, that we survived something really difficult, we were not meant to survive. And it is the truth. However, if we stay in that survivor self all the time, we never get to thrive. So the survivor self is a part of us that we can never, ever get rid of. She or he will always be a part of us. We just need to know who's talking to us at what time. So the survivor self, then we have the watcher self, which is the wise, wisdom, soul, um, infinite part of us that I know you've heard many times when people say after grief, they can't even decide on the simplest things. They don't know the answers to, to the easiest questions. There's the fog, there's the, 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 the noise. They don't understand their life anymore. They don't know who they are. So when we're grieving, we're losing the wisdom. So I call that part the watcher. So we find a way to bring back the watcher the knower, the, the part of us that has been here all along and knows everything about who we are. So we make sure that we engage with the wise self that is here and will always be here, even though grief is uh, shadowing that part. And then the third part is the thriver self, the kid, the kid-like part of us that is completely wiped out after loss. We have to work so hard to bring that part back to 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 the living to re-enter the thriver self so the survivor self the watcher and the thriver these are the three parts of us that are engaging in the process in in life after loss the survivor takes us back to the waiting room the thriver takes us back to life and the watcher makes sure that we're making the right decisions and gives us wisdom beautiful beautiful okay hmm so um, I want to transition into how loss affects our lives and relationship to money. Mm -hmm. And I want to do that by um, hearing some of your money story that, of yeah. course, Lee, you know, helped form you um, and also... Um, plays out in you know your decisions in your 20s and 30s and getting married and then losing your husband and having to take of two take care of two young girls and so on okay so um as we move into questions that are more about your relationship to money but of course will include loss in life and all of it i want to start out with just a sure snapshot of where you're at with family and work right now. I shared some in your bio, but I'd love to hear yeah. where you're at with your family and then we'll go. Yeah. So right now um, we moved from California uh, to Austin, Texas. And we actually, um, the town that was on fire was my little town that I lived in for six years. Mm -hmm. so, so our friends had to evacuate. Um, so we just moved from there. And right now I live with my second husband, Eric. And our younger daughters, and they're both about to go to college, so they're both 17, about to be 18 in the early 2020. 
and the other two girls are already out in college, out in the world. So after this year, um, we're going to be empty nesters. Um, and we have two dogs. Um, Eric works full time in the corporate world, and I work um, on my work from home uh, here every day, um, doing the life entry work and writing books and my podcast. Um, and we are loving Austin, Texas. This is brand new. Uh, one thing I want to say is that we've moved a few times in our life after loss because I believe in um, re-entering many times in life and, and getting to know ourselves in new environments because there's new identities that emerge when we do that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so there's a new Christina here. And this, and, and, and then I will, I will let you answer, ask the next question, but this Christina here, um, these last few months, and actually the reason why I moved, I decided to move from California to here, I knew there was change that was going to take place and within me. And one of the biggest changes that I've had now, and as we talk about my life getting to here, you'll see what a big thing this was, was the valuing my time, valuing myself, um, my skills. Um, every word that I say and every moment that I spend with someone is is super important, how, how I choose to do that. So... I changed a lot of things in the way that I work, how much I work, how often I work, how much I slow down and how much I care for myself now. I've never cared for my body as much as I do. I did in the last six months before in my life. I love love it. I've known you from the East Coast and then California and I knew you had moved, but I had no idea it was Austin. Yes. And I love that this is part of your re-entry it's it's cultivating resiliency and it's putting yourself I mean moving home home you know and it's huge you know and you keep doing it um not for not just for fun but for everything that you just mentioned for all the reasons you know love it and I know you're 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 not from this country we're going to talk about that okay Okay. so let's begin by what is the main emotions or set of emotions that comes up for you around money so yeah yeah, it's it's struggle and I grew up um and 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 this is why everything I've become the money I've made with this work the money I've made with my art or or has been a big shock to me and a big surprise um, so I come from a small town in Greece where my parents worked so hard to make money to raise us. My dad had three jobs at some point, um, and my mom and him worked, um, together during the day. We had a small shop, um, that sold, um, embroidery, embroidery, um, like threads and needles and also sold socks and, um, leggings and um, I don't know uh, bed sheets and towels and it was like a shop that had like a lot of home goods and home items as well as personal items and we and I saw and, and Barry this is why I think your work is so important as gro- growing up I remember how my parents made money they would sell um, you know like um, um, a needle or a thread or um, 
a, a t-shirt or something for for a dollar or something it's something so small and they would have to sell many of those every day to even to make it um so money was made in a very hard way and then whatever money the shop made wasn't enough so my dad also worked at a factory um so my parents were not educated they never went to college so they were just workers they worked really hard my dad worked at this factory so he would wake up early and then he would run to get the bus um to go and work at this factory and then after the factory was done he would come to the shop to help my mom um and then they made sure that we we had everything we needed so i grew up um seeing my parents working for every penny they had so my first story and my first emotion about money was that it was hard it was hard to make and you watch them you know spending all their time at a few jobs and to yeah. make ends meet do you did were you able to have enough food on the table and needs yeah. yeah, there was definitely enough food on the table we also had a beautiful garden so they had tomatoes there and so there was definitely there was always food but there was definitely a time that i remember that our car broke down and we had to find money to fix the car um because the because we, we wouldn't um we 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 didn't have the extra and i remember during those days we had to be super like careful like like maybe we wouldn't have enough to to have food we did have food always i never remember not having but it was close uh, for a period of time it was close um and my dad had got during that time a third job to help someone put up curtain poles. I mean, Barry, you know, I know you don't know this part of my story. I'd never share it. I've never, I have not shared it, but we, we, we really didn't. I mean, we had a beautiful garden um, close to the ocean. Uh, we could see the ocean from our yard, which, uh, you know, that's a, it's a big deal, but the house was a thousand square feet um, built um, overnight by wood it was illegal as well um another thing <laughs> that uh, there was no permits um allowed in that area um so my parents had to get all these workers overnight to put the walls up um and the roof it was the house is still there my parents live there it's standing still but it was basically built with nothing and um and yeah that's that's how it was and so when when my, my dad believed in me and uh, my sister Artemis getting an education and, and finding our way out of a life that was very restrictive, um, he basically, I've never, I never got on a plane before age 18. He said, I'm gonna put you on this plane and you're gonna go to your great aunt in the UK, in a small town up north of England, and you're going to spend time with her there, and you're going to learn the language, and you're going to see if there's any other opportunities for you out of this country. Wow! Wow! Anything else about um, your? Were your grandparents alive and oh. helping raise you, and what was their work? And yeah. has your family always been from Greece? Are you just 
Are you Greek through and through? From oh, all yeah. So another, so you're so you too, you know, there's, of course, there's multiple um, origin stories here because my mom, my mom was adopted. Uh, she was left at an orphanage on a, on a small, like, cot box outside of a window. And so she's never found out where she's from. She was always very fair, blue eyes. Um, we never knew where she was, she was from. So my grandparents um, found, found her when she was around two. She spent the first two years in an orphanage. So they adopted her because they couldn't have children. And I didn't find out my mom was adopted until I was 18. Uh, found out while we're driving in the car, she told me one day. And I was shocked. I loved because my my grand my grandmother had died by then, but my granddad lived with us in, in our home. The reason why I want to mention him in this story is because even though we were not biologically related, um, we lived. For me, he was my granddad because that I didn't know anything else, and I, I didn't know not that, even if I knew, it wouldn't have changed anything. But but I didn't know any anything about the adoption. And Barry, I have to tell you, this guy always had money. <laughs> I have to tell you, we were the first family uh, to have a color TV because he, <laughs> even though my, my dad didn't want his money because, you know, we were proud, but he said, because he lived with us, he said, well, I live here, so I want a color TV, so I'm going to get us one. And so he got us a color TV, the first family to have it in the neighborhood, and he somehow, and I don't know how, and this is fascinating about Mamani's story, he was always wealthy. In, in, he wasn't wealthy like wealthy like we, we, we meet people here, but he was wealthy in, his, in, in, in our life, right? He always had extra cash lying around. Um, he, was, um, he sold fabric. As a, um, he was a fabric salesman, <laughs> and he um, in the forties and thirties he he had this donkey, and he would put the fabric on on a thing on top of his donkey, and he would walk the the neighborhood, the streets. This is before I was born, um, obviously, and sell it, and that's how he made his money. And mm -hmm. he made good money, Barry, doing that. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're starting to share some of the threads, you know, of. What influenced you both um, positively, both challenges, you know, both also beauty, you know, having a garden, um, having a grandparent live with you. Um, what, do you remember anything about what you thought was possible or wanted to be or what skills you were developing as a girl? Like, could you see into the future. I mean, here your father was saying, I want you to get an education and that you would be the first. Sounds like the first in the family to do that. Yeah. And, he, yeah. and you know, it's so interesting. And I've thought about this so much because to me, who I became and everything I created in, in the world has been the biggest surprise, Barry. That like I'm still um, a good friend of mine, Kristen Carlson. I don't know if you know her. Um, she's, she's awesome. Um, she would be a great guest for you, actually. Um, she would say to me, um, Christine would say, I feel like the first few years of your, of your work, you've been pinching yourself. And it's true. And, and this is because growing up, I'm trying to find the, the breadcrumbs or the, 
um, evidence of any of this and I, I struggle to find them. Um, I don't think anyone believed I could do much hmm. or create anything. Um, I was a B student at school. I didn't want to study. I hated studying. Um, Me too. <laughs> I hated it so much. I, I didn't like rules. Me I didn't too. like anyone telling me what to do. And, and lately, actually, I found, I discovered that I get so much anxiety when, when I have to deliver something to someone else. Like, I'm so angry. <laughs> like, I can't do it. No wonder I work for myself. Like, it's, it's don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me there's a timeline. Like, I get to decide. So I think, I think I didn't like going to school. I didn't like being told what I need to do, how I need to learn. Um, I struggled throughout school completely. I hated going. I used to feel nauseous every morning mm-hmm. having to take, to get on the bus, to go. My childhood was definitely hard. Um, my dad was very strict. Um, he wouldn't let me get up from the chair unless I finished my homework. Very, very traditionally strict, very. Um, so it was hard for me to have a voice or to really believe in anything. And I fought with him a lot. And I remember when he told me that I should go to the UK, I was glad to run away from, I felt like I was running finally away from home. Okay. I wasn't running away. From, I didn't run away from home, but I was escaping. I felt like finally I get to escape. Yeah. Did you have to work or did your father just really want you to focus on schoolwork? And he was very strict. Yeah. We, he always said he didn't want his kids working. He wanted them to, to, to think about their education. However, that's not what happened. I worked at the shop growing up, Barry. I can't believe I have not shared any of these stories with anyone. I worked at the shop. So all the other kids could go home after school. I had to go to the shop and work there. Um, and help them with their customers and manage the the cashier thing um, and then and then I have to say to you to everyone listening I was so embarrassed um, ashamed that my friends would come in and shop at the shop with their parents mm-hmm. I would hide I would hide behind the um, <laughs> behind all the shelves and things I would just hide if anyone walked in that I knew from school <laughs> I would just hide because nobody was working and I was working. I was working there. So I worked at the shop and then I worked in college. I worked, oh my gosh, I worked um, all the way through at the movie theater selling popcorn. Yeah. 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 I'm seeing so many threads of you becoming an entrepreneur and creating your <laughs> in the world. I mean, so many, you know, from, yeah, so many. Um including the struggle with your father, you know, and that he was so strong and that there was so much sparring, verbal sparring going on between you two. And, you know, and then you had to individuate from him and, you know, he gave you a gift um, of sending you off to the UK so that you could really, yeah. Yeah, I mean, my life would have been very different if you never did that. And, And, you know, at the time, nobody, like I said, I hadn't, I hadn't, I, I, we, we definitely traveled in the countries around Greece by car, but never gotten on a plane. And I didn't have any friends who ever got on a plane. Uh, so when he put, us, he put me on the plane, um, I was the only one in my high school year that I was leaving home. The only one, Barry. So everyone, all of our friends, adult friends, their friends, my parents' friends, they, they said that they thought my dad was crazy. 
I know, right? When you look back now, oh yeah. <laughs> when you look back now on your childhood, what's your um yeah, what's your heart view of yourself, of your family? What's your perspective now? It's a good question. I, I have the best parents. They're both still alive. They, they're coming to visit me here in December. Um, they're hardworking people. They, they will be married 50 years, uh, December 26th. Um, I think my dad uh, was such a hard worker that that's the only way he knew um, the discipline and the, the strictness. That's the only way he knew how to raise, as he would say, good children. Um, and always and honesty was a big deal like for me even now if anyone lies to me in my life I find it very hard to forgive that um, because she was always said you know I don't care what you do just don't lie to me we can deal with the truth and um, but not with the lies I can't help you with the lies so there was always truth and honesty and and even though it was hard um, growing up um, under his roof and my mom was very quiet my mom did not um, my mom, my mom was there, uh, kind of quiet, watching sometimes everything, and and I think she was, I guess, you know, I I, I wish she had a bigger voice growing up. Um, but now looking back, I'm very grateful for my dad being such a leader um, in, in a community that couldn't even imagine uh, anyone sending their kids off to, to a different country. And he believed in this deeply. He fought with every relative about this. He had arguments about this. And it was not a choice. It was you're getting on a plane and you're leaving. And it was supposed to be for a year. I wasn't supposed to stay, Barry. So I have so many questions about that. But I, wanna, I want to, and maybe we'll come back to that, but I do want to jump to... Um, you, we. I know this story a little bit, but I want to hear more details. So I know you decided to get a degree in grief and counseling, and but then you had young kids, and your husband got sick, and then you went back to school during that time to work in H and R. And I remember you naming, and I want to hear more how much you made in that first job and that that was so amazing for you and such a big deal. And then after your husband got sick and passed, you had to keep working to support your young girls and that you also had a, a male boss that really stood up for you and helped you value your skill set and time and helped you get another job making more money, which was so important for your family at that time. So will you, th this is a, a question on multiple levels of, you know, the money that you were making and how significant it was for you at that time, the challenge of having to work during grief and that you did, um, will you share more of, of this time? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so living in England after Greece, so my parents, everything they made, they would send it to me. And, and here's, here's a, an important part that I never really articulated was that the standard of living in Greece versus the UK was so different. So yeah. every, every dollar they're sent for them, it was like they were sending $5 
for, for me was a dollar because it was so much more expensive in the UK. So there was definitely guilt spending that money. Um, they would send us. I was there first and then um, a year later, my sister joined as well. So that's when I say us, the, after the first year, I'm referring to my sister too. And um, so I got a job in, uh, while in college uh, working at the movie theater and I would um, do 14 hour shifts um, as well as my first degree was in education. So my, I would teach in schools after, after classes and then I would also work at the theater, um, cleaning bathrooms, toilets, um, theater screens. And I actually loved it. I, I loved the people there, I loved doing it. And I was very proud to make some money to help um, with the expenses. And then... Um, and that and was from 18, 18... Yes, from 18, 20. Yeah, and, 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 and here's, the, here's the, where the money story becomes even more complicated. When, so Biana, my husband, was very healthy and well uh, for, in the beginning of our marriage. Uh, we had dreams to move to the U.S. And so this is how it happened. We are in the U.K. Um, I met him in Denmark. I was there as an exchange student. I met him there. We fell in love and he moved. He moved uh, to the UK while I was finishing my master's in counseling and guidance, the, the counseling work. Um, and then at the end of that, we both wanted to move to the US. So his job um, moved us to the US, but I was not allowed, this is the fascinating part, I was not allowed to work here. Mm because his visa was the work visa. And I, I had a, at the time, the, it called the L1 and L2. Um, the, that was a transfer visa. The spouse is not supposed to work. And then even when the visa changed to H, uh, at the time, I was still not allowed to work. So I was not allowed to make any money, Barry, when I moved here. And what was that like for you? Oh my God, Barry, I can't believe it. <laughs> I just never thought of it before. It's like, like Christina, you can't make any money. <laughs> So, so I was like, do I do a PhD? Um, okay. Do I have children? During this time while we're waiting for a green card, which green cards take years, years to come. Um, so we started having children. Um, and, and then we moved to California. Yeah, I've moved many times. That's true. We moved to California. Um, and then Isabel was born there. And then we moved to Boston and that's when he was diagnosed. And at the time, when he got diagnosed in 2003, we are in the process of getting a green card, green card and I was, not, I was still not allowed to work. We were about three years away from getting that green card. Right. So give me just a time frame. You, from 18 to what year were you working? Yeah, 18 to 24 to 25, I had uh, during all the education years, so the first, from 18 to 21, I was uh, learning English. I couldn't, I, my English was very basic. Um, so I know, right? I mean, the fact that I'm an author now and I'm writing books blows my mind. You see? In English, the, writing books in English. Yeah. In English, it's just pinch me, right? And, and it's been the, just, I just found out where did you go was translated in Portuguese. Second first has been translated Chinese, in German. I mean, it's just been like, what? What? And, and that's why the origin story is, people don't know it and it's so so surprising how I got here um so the, between 18 and 24 5 I would work 
on the side in England uh, to make money, extra money for expenses. And then we moved to the US, um, Valentine's Day, 1999. And I am not allowed to work in the US. It's illegal, I can't. He can, he, he has an amazing job, but at the time he was making uh, only, I think his first job in the US, um, I shouldn't say only because for people that's a lot of money, um, first job in the US, $60,000, $58,000. And, um, it, you know, we started, we, I got pregnant, um, had Alina, had Isabel, and then while in Boston, we had moved in Boston at December 2002, and he got diagnosed with stage four colon cancer this, uh, February 2003. And I am not, that's the thing, and he was told he was supposed to die within the next six months because it was stage four. And I had no job, Barry. I couldn't work. No matter what, I was not allowed to work. And Isabel was nine months old, and Alina at the time was two and a half years old. And, and, he, and your husband's job was paying? He, he continued to, here's the, the thing, he, he's a superhero, right? He's a, and I use present tense because I believe we never die. <laughs> and now we can have another conversation about that. Um, but he uh, is working. He worked and kept a full-time job, Barry, all the way to 10 days before he died. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And um, we, we got our green card, which meant that I could work six months before he died. And he turned around and he said to me, I can die now. Uh. Yeah. So yeah. How, how do you, I, I mean, pardon me. Okay. I want to have a cry, a moment. For <laughs> no. um, it, this just brings up so much for me. Um, how, how do you, step into work when you haven't been able to work for so many years yeah how do you step into you know finding a skill set that you can bring to the marketplace in the middle of a tremendous loss and I, and I want to say that he was everything to me Barry mm-hmm. he not only he was uh, the father of my children he was an amazing father as well. Like he was just an exceptional father. Uh, and at the time I believed he was the smarter one. Um, he was uh, making, by then he was making really good money. So he was bringing in, um, supporting his family exceptionally. Um, he was a senior director architect for Novell, um, a big company. Uh, he had stock options. He will, it, it was it was an incredible man, uh, very smart. And I used to believe that it should have been me Ugh. that died, not him. Ugh. He was the he was the better one, I would say, and I believed it, Barry. Tell me his name. Tell me his name again. Biana, B, and uh, so his name is spelled B J A R N E. And the J is a silent, so it's Bjarna, Bjarna. And uh, people call him Barney, Bujarni. He would always laugh. He would always laugh at this. But it's a very Danish name, um, Bjarna. Um, there's a lot of Bjorns, but he's a Bjarna 
it's yeah, a need yeah, in the end. Um, and and he, so he was even before the green card came. Um, the year between year two to three, so he lived for three and a half years with the cancer. Between the year two to three and a half, I went back to school part time to do the postgraduate degree in human resource management at Northeastern in Boston. And I would go there. So imagine my kids are at the time. Um, so he, there were four and six when he died. So there were three and five. And so he's in treatments. He works. He has chemotherapy treatments. He's very sick. We have two very small children. And I go to the university to get a degree preparing for his death. We're both preparing for his death. So I, I could have a job because I never worked in the U.S., Barry. Mm. Never, right? Mm. I never worked. I never made any money in the U.S. My mind thinks it can't, I can't do it. Yeah. And, and I want to say also um, there was a life insurance mm -hmm. um, uh, that, that I had as my foundation. Yeah. So if, if it took me, I said, if, if it would take me a long time to find a job, I would still be able to pay the bills that were coming in um, and so I, and I have a story about this very, very, it's not even a story, the credit cards. So he dies um, and, and I don't know if the life insurance will come through as well. These things are complicated. So it does come through a couple of months later, but when he died, I did not have any money for the funeral. So my parents uh, transferred their savings. Um, for the funeral mm -hmm. and so I'm in this place of the, the the life insurance comes it goes in the bank account and I go to get a credit card and they decline me do you know why because my I had no and for everyone who's listening to this I learned this the hard way I had no credit history yeah, yeah. because every credit card was he, his name was the his social security now was the primary and I was the secondary. And because I was the secondary, it did not give me credit history at all. So I was blank. And he, he was the most um, on time bill payer in, in the history of my life. I've never known anyone more on time. Like we, he had, we, I, we were supposed to, he had a perfect uh, credit score, perfect. And I had, and we didn't know this then, I had nothing. And I remember um, got, got rejected by the bank. I went to the cemetery and got mad. Um, and then the woman said to me, this is what you have to do. Uh, you have to um, spend $300 every month and you have to pay it for six months. And then we'll give you a card. Mm. Yeah. So I, went, I had to work for that. I had to work for, for that history, that credit history. Yeah. Hmm. So, my God, so much of... I'm sorry, Barry, I know it's a lot. Right? No, I mean, I mean, it's not that self-worth and self-value are determined by the money we make or how much money we make, and it's not. But at the same time, you came over here and could not work and could not make your own money, you know? Um, and And then when he passed you, you know, you, you had to do all of that. Yeah. Um, and you had worked for years and made money for years, 
but not necessarily supported a whole family. You no, know, and it was it was it was money that was jobs labored like working at the movie theater or coffee shop or mm -hmm. it wasn't at my dad's shop. It wasn't a, a money. It wasn't jobs with my education, right? With my master's, with my business, with my business degrees, my education degrees. My I was highly educated, but I had never worked in the U.S. And so after he died, I went back and finished the HR business postgraduate degree. I finished that, um, and 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 I have to say, um, I was dev I was I was destroyed with his death completely. And this is why I've done all this work. I was so destroyed. I was a ghost, and I had to go get my degree because I believed, my belief was that my other degrees would not be enough, uh, that I would have to make enough money. Uh, in order for me to make enough money, my belief at the time was that I need to be in the corporate work uh, world, and I needed that to also bring health insurance. So I calculated how much, uh, how much support that life insurance would give me, and how much money did I need to make every month so by the time the kids got to this, to where they are now, I would, I would be able to afford them to go to college, basically. So it was all of those things in my head at the time, as well as grieving deeply. And, um, and I got my first job. I had this angel of a human being who has passed since then. His name was Bob. And he found out about my story and me. Um, I was 34 at the time when Diana died when I met him, I was 35, um, and that's when he did this most amazing thing, Barry, and I will never forget it. I'm alone. I'm a single mom. I, I cry morning to night. I cry all the time. I feel like I'm an alien living on this planet. Um, all of my friends are with their husbands and families happily. Of course, they're helping, but nobody can really make me feel better. And this stranger comes and he has an HR agency. He has recruited all, all the top talent in the Boston area. And he does this thing, Barry, and I will never forget it. He writes this, he sends like a hundred letters, including Harvard University. I mean, the medical school in Harvard, the, all the top um, corporations in Boston, some of the biggest pharmaceutical companies, and asked them to hire me. Mm. I know, right? Mm -hmm. And I got all these interviews. That my, my phone started ringing nonstop. And I had to start at the bottom, right? So I was interviewing at Harvard, and I actually turned down Harvard. Can you believe it? <laughs> well, it just wasn't right. It, was something it wasn't right. I was supposed to be the um, right-hand woman for the dean of medicine at Harvard University. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I turned it, I turned that, um, I was the finalist um, of the interview and I said to the woman, I said, uh, even if I, ha I get this job, it's, this is not what I want. Okay. I turned it down. It was very honest. Yeah. What did you say yes to? I said yes to this, uh, to a big um, pharmaceutical company, clinical trial company called Paraxel. It's the company that does the clinical trials of all the big drugs, the, the main drugs you have out in the world. And I was, the, my first job there was HR associate okay. for whatever, $35,000 a year full time. And at the level that I was at, all of my peers were at least 10 years younger than me. Okay. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Mm.
So where do we go? I, I mean, it's like we, you know, from there, I know that there was a significant raise, I think at some point to 65 or 70. It doubled. Yeah. Doubled within five months. Okay. Yeah. Within, wow. in, in history, in their history of all of the, of, of all of their HR employees there and this, and the HR branch was massive. I mean, this, we were in 50 countries. This was a big company that nobody had ever done it um in in such a short amount of time so five months i get my own office um so i was hard worker right even in my grief a single mom with two little babies not babies four and six you know five and seven years old uh, six and eight you know they're growing these years i'm working there and i worked so hard um had this job um during those years i met eric and um, I was doing so well. I, I and for me that sixty-eight, seventy thousand um, dollars was definitely the beginning of me seeing I can, mm, I could do this on my own. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. When, when the money, when there's no life insurance money for the additional, um, I could keep the house still. I could. Do you know what I mean? Like. I wasn't taking anything for granted. I was like, I could get there. I could get there. Um, and I remember I was so unhappy in that job, Barry. Right. The only reason why I was doing it was yeah. because of the security it gave me with health insurance and the kids. Yeah. And so at some point you took an enormous leap yes. to start your own work. And I have questions about that, but I also have questions about parenting and money and what you have done in that realm what's been conscious unconscious what have you tried to do differently where do we go here because i'm looking at we have so many questions but i want to honor time and so let's let's answer a few of these because i'm sure some people would be very interested how did you go from mm -hmm. you know loss and grieving and stepping into the corporate world and the HR world and making 35 and then doubling within five months and doing that for however long you did. And then saying, I I'm terrified. I know you were really scared to take that leap to start. I cried and very sad. And, and I cried about it. Like this was because I was there for three years in that company, okay. uh, two and a half years in this awesome. Um, I was an HR business partner. I mean, I hired and fired and, I, I, I had 30 job acquisitions under me I was responsible for. I trained the leaders of this company. I mean, I was, um, this was definitely a, a great job for anyone else, right? <laughs> so it's also explained like there were so many baby steps here. Yeah. And, and well, you took a leap in doubling, you know, and then you all baby steps, baby steps, skill set, growth, foundation three years having tons of people underneath you and then you finally stepped into your own work and i've no i know you've had one leap after the next but and you're an enormous visioner and big thinker yeah and, but from what we're clearly all hearing here is you know this was not necessarily your childhood. This was not, I mean, it might've been you in your mind of like, I don't like school and I don't <laughs> like rules and I don't, you know, um, 
yeah, I, I please share more of that story and then we'll go into parenting and money, which we could have, you know, there's so many questions yeah. here I want to know. And, and then we'll complete with what does money legacy mean to you? Um, so th that's where I'm going. And yeah. 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 And, and, and there's a, there's a place and, and I can't wait to tell you about where I am now and, and what this means yeah. and how yeah. it all is, but, yes. um, but, but it's amazing as I'm telling my story and to follow the thread here with the money part of all of this, the struggle, the resilience, the, the growth, the, and when I was allowed to make money and when I was not allowed and, and working all the jobs and, and then not being allowed to work. I mean, it's amazing to say it all out loud, but, um, I, while I was at this company, um, at night, because I was so depressed being there, I hated it. And, and I performed at a very high level. Um, I, yes. And of course it was a very new world to me because not nobody in my family uh, ever lived in a world like that. Nobody, nobody had ever lost someone so significant in their lives. Nobody has been a single parent uh, that I've known. My grandmother lost my grandfather, my dad's mom when she was 59. That's not 35. And um, so I, I was definitely new territory, a new landscape. Um, I became the person who would give advice. And I also felt like nobody could advise me because my, I had so much more experience than everyone else. So I was lonely. I actually have been lonely since then. Um, very lonely in many ways. And that's another call, another conversation. But um, I decided to, to leave um, when I hired my boss, um, who, I, who I trained to do what I've been doing um, when, I had, when they had to fire my boss. So I was doing two jobs. I had taken on all these responsibilities. I was doing amazing, but still I didn't like the job. So when I hired her, I interviewed all, all my bosses. <laughs> I, I, now looking back, of course I was doing great. And if I stayed in the corporate world now, I would be a senior VP, Barry, with, uh, with a pretty good salary and options and all sorts of things. But this is not what I chose. So one day in the kitchen, I remember Eric telling me, what are you waiting for? Because I hated Mondays so much. And uh, I, was, I was in the waiting room. Yeah, that's when from 2006 when he died to 2010, I was in the waiting room and I didn't know. And it it looked like I had moved on in my life. It looked like I was doing great, and I was deeply miserable, deeply miserable. And at night in those years at this company, that's when I came up with the word second firsts, and I got the domain name and parked it and didn't tell anyone. Um, that's when deeply secretive in a deeply secretive place i wanted to help people people after loss um so i resigned one day and i gave them two week notice and it took me two years from that day to say yes to sharing credit cards with eric mm -hmm. because barry i was it's the the fear center in my brain right you cannot depend on anyone else, Christina, ever again. Okay. Right? That was the story. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I wondered what that meant, that you wouldn't share credit cards with him. Like, what meaning you were putting on that. And the meaning was, um, I'm, I'm, you're not going to be dependent on someone else again. 
because um, they'll they'll die because yeah, they will leave they will die that, that would have to to and and that I still to this day I still think about that and one of the reasons also why I worked all, always always worked um, so the, and and then I want to bring people all the way to today yes yeah and maybe ignore my question about parenting and kids because that's a whole other <laughs> but, but I do want to hear everything I want to hear about today what you've created and also yeah. there's something full circle here about your parents and are you giving money back to them are that you know they're still alive which is amazing you know and yeah. just um but she and also do you not want to depend on someone else because you weren't allowed to work for so long yeah you know and so it's it's really significant and meaningful for you to make your own money oh and, God, yes Okay, so yeah, please. Yeah, so so I I resigned from the corporate world, um, crying, afraid. Oh my God! And then my 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 brain told me at the time, Christina, go and um, create a consultancy um, business around HR. So I would consult small companies in HR um, because I was really good at this job. I would be my own boss. This is how it started. Can you believe it, Barry? And um, so I, I got myself mentors around me and everyone was so excited to work with me and they, they couldn't wait because I was going to do all this great stuff. And then one day I spoke to someone. That's why it's so important for everyone who's listening to have coaches and mentors around you. I, was, I had also done a year-long brain science coaching certification too. Uh, as, as on the side, I'm uh, uh, Barry. <laughs> I have overworked myself, overeducated myself, overprepared for everything, right? Uh, for the war, for, for famine, for not having anything. So I was super equipped. And um, this guy, when I told him about Second First, um, kind of in secret, um, that's a secret thing and a secret dream, he's like, he's like you've got to be kidding me. You've got to do this. So what I did next was pretty important. I actually, because nobody wanted me to do this, this work. They, Who, who's nobody? Who's the, who's the? All the, all the mentors. The, I, I had uh, around me these great corporate um, retired uh, CEOs um, who were helping me. I was in this great organization who for free um, gave advice. And so I had this, this guy's name was Howard and this other guy, John, they were all, and when I told them about me doing this, they said, no, no, they were adamant. So I canceled all my meetings with all those people and went quiet for the first three to six months building second verse. And then I went back when, when I proved my concept and when I had tens of thousands of people reading me and following me within months, what happened and, and for everyone who's listening, who has a dream, who is, a, is afraid to believe in their own value, can, they, can that dream make money? Can that dream impact the, the world? <coughs> I, um, the moment I stepped onto the carpet of second firsts, my God, Barry, like it was destiny. Yeah, yeah. It, it just... It, exploded it, it that's not the right word it 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 just grew it was so needed and so yeah. wanted um so clearly and so quickly yeah and it was and to me and now 
for everyone who's listening, this, the story of my life and the way I really came here has not really been shared before in this detailed way. For me, for the girl in that town in Greece, with not really moving to the UK, not speaking the language, I mean, this was definitely, and then when Hay House knocked on my door, offered a book deal for second firsts, they, they, were, they were blown away by the concept, the words, they didn't want to change anything. It was like, this is the book. Um, I remember my agent, Stephanie, when <laughs> she said to me, sit down, <laughs> when she was telling me the, the, the news about getting our first, we actually had two book offers for the first book. I, it was, this was 2011. This was early, yeah. really early. And, um, and then, and then I stepped into that world, um, and I started making money. I remember my first course, my first life entry program, um, had one registration <laughs> and then all of my money stories and money beliefs came crushing me down. Like I can never do this. This is impossible. I remember sitting, um, on the, on the bathroom floor crying a week before my class was about to begin online. I had one registration and I said, how in the world am I going to do this? And I was pulling from many thousands of people. I had a big audience at the t for, for the time, for what it was, for 2011. And, um, and I got back up the next morning and I started calling, calling people. And I got, I got that first class to 22. Mm. And, and thank God that I believed in myself mm. and the value in what I was creating because that first group was so mind-blowing that then... I mean, I have 300 people in these life entry classes and now I, um, I close the doors to 100 because more than 100 is just crazy. Um, I can't help them all at the same time. Now it's a clinical trial. I wrote another book in 2016, published in 2018. And now, um, now here's what happened with all the, my threads and... And what I believed about money up until very lately was that in order to make money, and this is a big thing, in order to make money, as far as I'm concerned, Barry, I had to work really hard for it. Yeah. And that was a lie. That was a big fat lie. That is not true. Hmm. I don't, that, that I had to work so hard that I, I had to sacrifice my life for it and um, i think that's what you mean is that there's nothing wrong with hard work there's yeah, no yeah. like you the 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 belief was that you had to work around the clock you had to work three jobs and you would yes. and maybe one time in your life you did and your parents did and you know sometimes we go through phases where we do right but yeah. i think what you're getting at is that that's not true any longer that's not where you're at that there's and other ways of working go ahead and that's not, and it's not true in the way, I guess what I'm saying is that I guess the lie was about anything that in order for me to support my family, I had to sacrifice everything. Yes. Yeah. The sacrifice was, was the lie. So that's the, the rephrase, right? The sacrifice of myself was the lie. I love, and it goes back to what you said at the very beginning. At some point, you've learned how to value your time, yes. skills. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Your money, time, value, energy, oh. in a completely different way. You're not willing to sacrifice and contort yourself. 
um, to, to, to be in the world. Right? And, 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 Barry, and this is where I'm in the last six months, I've stepped into a very different chapter of my life and talk about money legacy and what is the legacy that I, I hope I get to rewrite for my kids. And because they, they have seen the struggle, right? They have seen the fear, right? They've seen the hardworking mother. They've seen all of that. And like you said, there's nothing wrong with it, but, but I had given it, I gave it all. I gave it my all and, and maybe that's not okay. I think we have to keep something to ourselves and life is much more important than work um, and much more important than money. So in the last six months, I have to tell you, Barry, and I try to understand it myself. And th since this is the beginning of this journey, my wisdom on this is possibly very basic, but I want to say that something hit me over the head last March so much. Just, and it was invisible what hit me. It wasn't an event. Nothing happened. I didn't experience a loss. I was actually at the most successful time in my work um, where it was, it was a lot of work. It, was, it, it had exploded. It, it was, it was, I had classes, programs, books, things, like everything was going on. Um, and I turned around and said, I am not willing. I'm no longer willing to live like this for anyone, for anything. And I slowed down. I said a lot of no's, I said a lot of, I said a lot of boundaries, and then something really strange started to happen. I was making money easier. It was so fascinating, Barry. <laughs> it's so, and the clinical trial came literally two weeks after they got, they, they received, um, and, and, and I don't know if I should say the amount, but it's a big, a lot of money for the uh, clinical trial on life reentry. It was as soon as I let go, <laughs> like, and I'm, I'm holding my hands and I'm up in the air right now. I let go. The universe just threw everything. And now, now I'm entering this place where um, working hard for me now is, is all about joy. Did they offer you an amount and you had to negotiate that? Or was that? The clinical trial? Yes. The clinical trial money goes to the um, foundation that is going to conduct the study. Um, I get paid for my time, but um, that was a, a grant, um, a very, very large grant from the Brain Injury Foundation to study me, study life injury, um, which is not only an impossible dream, but most people never have their work studied in, in a traditional way like this it's yeah. it's an honor but and then and then um and then we moved and i decided that we it was time for us to move because i guess my brain wants to mirror inner change with outer change a lot and we came here house is cheaper but <laughs> but this is how the universe is weird right is double the size <laughs> You know, <laughs> so less work, more, more um, abundance, um, more freedom, um, more everything. Like it's, I, I live in a very abundant state right now. I have um, two or three appointments about for my body 
every week, whether it's a float um, session, um, sensory deprivation tanks, whether it's a massage, whether it's my trainer at the gym, whether and I meditate every day. And, and of course, I'm doing the best work of my life at the same time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love hearing about the nose. I love hearing about the boundaries. I love hearing that you something uh, uh, invisibly <laughs> hit you on the head, <laughs> you know, saying, you know, big shift needs to happen inner and outer right now and that you've stepped into a whole new place of more ease abundance and joy and care for your body um it's just a really different time i mean it sounds like a really beautiful healthy i, I don't know you know menopause perimenopause i don't know if, any, anyway <laughs> I, I i yeah i guess uh, it must be i'm 47 years old and i actually love sharing my age because the opposite is not being here so Mm-hmm. And I hope that I get to be, it's amazing, more creative. In, 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 and I've always been creative. Obviously, I've done all this work. It came out of my head. But um, I look forward to writing my first, first fiction, um, finishing my first fiction, and um, publishing my next books, and, and doing the clinical trial, um, helping nonprofit organizations locally as well, and also giving money away, Barry. That's what I want to talk about. This last, my legacy. Um, I want to, whatever money I make going forward, it is not for my survival anymore. Hmm. And that's a big change. Yeah, beautiful. Christina, thank you so much for sharing more of your life story and money story. And parts of your story that you've never shared before. <laughs> Thank you so much. How does it feel? No, and I think I love the the place of the end because it is it's the upside down of my story. Basically, I learned to make money for survival, um, but now I'm I'm, I'm I want to make money so I can give give it give it away. Like that's all I can think about. Who can I help? Mm-hmm. Who can how much money can I make so I can give it? I can give it. And um, not that charity was has always been a part of my life, but this is when you are in a survival mode and not in thriving mode, just the three personas of loss, um, of life reentry, you, you can only think of yourself. And even though you're helping other people, everything you're making when it comes to money is about your survival. And, and I learned that as a child, like we had to survive, we had to survive. But I think I'm entering a thriving phase now. And I'm looking forward to lessons and legacies that I was never given, but I get to create for my children and my grandchildren and hopefully for many generations to come. Beautiful, beautiful. Please share, lastly, how folks can find you. Um, we, um, so ChristinaRasmussen.com is the main website. Um, the blog, I write a, a letter every Friday. Um, it's at secondfirst.com. Um, and my books, Second Firsts, and also Where Did You Go, are on every bookstore and on Amazon as well. Oh, and the, my most favorite project, which I did for fun, <laughs> and I'm loving every minute of it, is the Dear Life podcast, um, Dear Life with Christina Rasmussen, 
which is we are four or five months in. And Barry, I can't wait to have you on the podcast as well. I'm really looking forward to that. Thank you for what you do as well, Barry. Um, your work is, especially for, I guess everyone goes through loss, but when people go through loss, any kind of loss, somehow it takes away our worthiness. Yeah. And the work you do is so important because of that. Yeah, so, I mean, I feel the same about your work and they're so interconnected. And thank you so much for being here today and for sharing everything and for the work. And thank you for your time, Ari. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining me with this Money Memoir interview. I really hope you found something here to take with you, whether it was a lesson, some inspiration, or even just a little grace for yourself and where you are in your money journey. If you're feeling called to wade deeper here, please pack your financial goals, soul deep aspirations, and grab your favorite person. The Art of Money is a holistic framework that integrates money healing, money practices, and money maps, and blends therapeutic, body-based practices with real-life tools that we all need to create healthy, sustainable change in our money lives. So if you'd like to begin your money healing journey with the Art of Money today, learn more at barrytesler.com.